All right, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to uh, the book of the Revelation. We're looking at Revelation chapter 5 tonight. Uh, We are going to do everything in our power to go all the way through Revelation chapter 5, and I want to open up by just reading it. And then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to leap loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and a golden bowl full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. And then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders and the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. So no matter what we take from tonight, we need to take that the purpose of this passage is worship. It is just like we saw last week, that the purpose, that the reason why God's given us the information that he has is so that we would know that God does what he says he would do and that he and he alone is worthy of worship. So let's dig in. So the first thing we see here is I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back sealed with seven seals. Now, so we have a scroll. It's in a person's right, in, in the, the person whose voice was like a trumpet. The person that we know uh, is, is God, and he's holding a scroll. Now, what exactly is this? The word scroll there is, uh, is the word from Biblion, which is obviously where we get the word Bible. Uh, it means a book. Uh, but the, what is implied here with the seven seals around it is a. Um, a scroll that, that is typically used for a contract or a, um, uh, a deed. And, and it is, was common for there to a couple of things that we see in this. One is that the scroll would be rolled up and on the outside of it would be a, 
a writing of what's inside. So it's like a description. So if you, if you like, if you go into, a, if you've ever been in a lawyer's office, I, I, for some reason I've always thought that they have to, there has to be some kind of uh, bookstore sale place where you can buy all the law books that the covers match. Um, so they'll have all that, and on the outside it'll say Penal Code 1967 to 1984, and there'll be a, a, a header on it that tells you what's inside of the book. And so that's exactly what we're talking about. You have a document that's a legal document that's going to be filed with the, the ancient equivalent of a courthouse, and so that would be rolled up, and then on the outside of it would be affixed, written down, what exactly is inside of that scroll. And then the witnesses who saw that the, the, the scroll was in fact signed and everything's legal, the, the judge, the, 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 the witnesses, the, 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 the attorneys, all would put their seal on it to show that this is in fact legit and there, there's nothing untoward about it. And then once it's sealed up, you've got on the outside written what says inside of it. So if somebody's looking through the file, they can find it, oh, here's the scroll that's this. And we know what's written inside of it. And, and that it is legit because it's been sealed with seven. And as we said last week, seven in biblical numerology is always the number of completion. We don't need any more understanding that it's complete. So what exactly is this contract? So let me, let's read the note here. This kind of contract was known all over the Middle East in ancient times and was used by Romans from the time of Nero on. The full contract would be written on the inner pages and sealed with seven seals, and then the, contact, the content of the contract would be described briefly on the outside. So just like if you walked up and saw, um, we have hundreds of things that are like that. If you think just yearbooks, I mean, my kids much to my shame, love to look at my yearbooks, and so they can just look on the outside, and they can say, oh, that's 1987, and they'll pull it out and say, that's the one where dad's got the goofy jean jacket and uh, the flock of seagulls hairdo, and they'll pull it out, and they'll, they'll flip through it. So it's on the outside. There's an outside thing that tells what it is. So now we have to ask ourselves, what exactly is going on? What is this scroll? And almost universally, commentators uh, feel like, and I think that in the context that we see in chapter 5, we, we would agree that what this scroll is representing is the title deed to the earth. Henry Morris wrote, What is this remarkable scroll? It is nothing less than the title deed to the earth itself. It is clearly the antitype of all the rich typological teaching associated with divinely sponsored procedures for land redemption in the Old Testament. And so we have here a scroll that is representative of the fact that the earth is currently under new management, if you will, at this scene. So let's see why we get that. So the writer says, I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is able to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven and earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll. Why would John weep loudly once he realized that nobody could open the scroll if it was anything else? John MacArthur writes, Throughout history there have been many pretenders to earth's throne who have sought to conquer and rule the earth. The first and most powerful and notorious usurper was Satan. After the rebellion against God was crushed, he and his angelic followers were thrown out of heaven in Luke 10, 18, Revelation 12, 3-4, and he became God of this world. He's inspired a whole host of humans to try their hand at conquest. 
men such as Nebuchadnezzar, Darius, Alexander the Great, emperors of Rome, Attila the Hun, Genghis Khan, Napoleon, Lenin, Stalin, Hitler. Many people throughout human history have tried to be, have control of that scroll. And they've all found wanting. And I, as, I, as I've studied this and thought about it, of course, your mind oft, automatically goes to the Napoleons and the Hitlers. But think about this. Jesus is the root of Jesse. Here, in the best case scenario, we had David, a man after God's own heart. David was the, if humanity could line up and give us the best we could offer, here was this guy. He grew up. Um, not pretentious. He didn't have a silver spoon in his mouth. This was somebody who picked himself up by his own bootstraps. As a young teenager, he fought bears and lions, literally, and won. He was someone who, when I read the story, as he walked out on that plane, as this massive mountain of a man is mocking the people of Israel, and David says, who is this? This little boy looks at that mountain of a man and said, who does he think he is? So that all the world will know that there's a God and he reigns. And David picked up little rocks. And as he went out on that field to meet Goliath, Goliath looked at him and said, what am I? A dog that you come to me with sticks? He's making fun of him. And yet David didn't even flinch. Today you will die. I read that as a man and I'm like, yeah, get some, David, get some. He flings that rock and it buries up into his head. I look at that and I say, that's somebody God can use. He didn't have his own pretension. It was all about he was focused on God. That's somebody that God can use. He's surely, surely he's somebody that could rule in this world and not be overtaken. And yet we see him on a balcony when he was lazing around when he should have been at war being where he shouldn't have been, when he shouldn't have been there. And step after step after step, he got himself deeper and deeper into trouble until he was such a disgusting wimp of a man that he didn't have the guts to deal with Uriah. One of his best friends himself, he sent him with his own death notice to a commanding officer. That same man, just a few years after he repented of that, so that he would look better in front of everybody else, counted the people. And I think that in that we see, you don't have to look at Nero, or you don't have to look at the worst to see that man was not made to handle that. You look at David. Look at Josiah. Look at the people who who should have had it all together. And I weep with John. There's nobody who's worthy to open the scroll. There's nobody who can do it. Men always fall apart. We don't deal well with power. We don't deal well with strength. Whatever way you want to read it, absolute power corrupts absolutely. There's nobody who's worthy to open the scroll. And so here, John weeps. He sees that this title deed, has. there's nobody who can open it. Now let's look at a little bit and take some time to see what we're talking about when I say the title deed to earth. In Genesis chapter 1, when God first created man, he said, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. 
And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, I've given you every plant yielding seed that's on the face of the earth, every tree with seed in its fruit, you shall have them for food, to every beast on the earth, every bird in the heavens, everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life. I've given every green plant for food. And so it was. And God saw everything that he had made. And behold, it was very good. And it was evening and morning the sixth day. So when God created this earth, he originally created this creation perfect and good. And he stood man up and he said, this is all yours, man. Have dominion over this. Rule over this. This is yours. And we all know the rest of the story. And so by default, Satan tricked man. Man in his pride, in his lack of obedience, fell In 1 Corinthians, Satan is referred to as the God of this world. We know that that's the case because this is what happens when Jesus himself is on this earth. In Luke chapter 4, the devil took Jesus up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, To you I will give all authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I'll give it to whom I will. So Jesus doesn't correct Satan. This seems to be a truthful statement. The enemy always loves to weave lie with the truth. And so here, Satan says, look, all you've got to do is fall down and worship me, and I'll give you all of this that's been turned over to me. Jesus, of course, unlike man in the garden, Jesus in the wilderness, uh, did not fall. And Jesus answered him and said, you shall worship the Lord your God, and only him shall you serve. So we have this very same scene that we see here in the book of Revelation laid out in the book of Psalms. Psalm chapter 2 just parallels beautifully. Why do the nations rage? We all do this. In the book of Habakkuk, if you read Habakkuk, it asks the same question that we do. If you watch CNN, Fox News, you sit down and, and read you know, whatever news aggregate you use on your computer, you have to ask the question, what is going on? And it would be easy for us to to look back and say that 1950 was the good old days. But it wasn't such a good day unless you were in a certain place at a certain time. The world's always been falling apart. There's no such thing as the good old days, as long as human beings are around. Because humans are cruel, they're deceitful, they're going to take advantage of other other people, and they're going to fight for what they want. I just read where a a study has come out that from 1945 to 1948, systematically, there were over 4 million German citizens that were killed. And we're the good guys. There's no such thing as the good old days. If you go back to the 1800s, you can read about corruption. Shockingly, you can read about politicians who lie and and line their own pockets. Benjamin Franklin made a paper, created a fictitious character, and wrote articles that he could then write and refute that guy so that he could sell papers. It's always been that way. Always will be that way. The earth, as long as there have been people around, there have been people taking advantage. The enemy is in control of things. And so we look around. I know you do. Sometimes you come to me and say, how is this possible? 
I, a, a few weeks ago, I, I went to a, 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 a domestic crime scene, and as we walked into this trailer, the husband and wife were both drunk. They were both after they had just wailed on each other the entire time, and they're, 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 there's beer cans and, and Four Locos cans all outside of the trailer. We walk into the trailer. They're screaming at each other. There's two big dogs that have messed all over the floor, and they're barking at each other. It was just this crazy, chaotic scene. And we walk in and are trying to get them calmed down. And I look in the floor, and there's an 18-month-old child sitting in a car seat. And I walk over to the kid, and the first thing he does is sticks his hand out with everything he's got and just, please pick me up, pick me up, pick me up, pick me up. And immediately I wanted to say, how can you be doing this? Do you not see your own flesh and blood right here? And that sort of thing's been going on for all of human history. And so we ask, why do the nations rage? Why does everybody fight with everybody else? Why is it? You've all heard the joke about the guy who was on a deserted island and uh, they had found him and and, and they were going to take him off. He said, well, before you go, I want to show you what I've built since I've been here. And he walks him around the island. He says, well, here's my my hut that I had and here's the area. And and he said, let me come, let me show your church. And the guy says, is that your church? He goes, no, that's where I used to go. And so (laughs) you get two or three people together, they're going to figure out what to disagree with each other about. We're going to come up with things that we don't like about each other. We're going to rage against each other. And so in Psalm chapter 2, the psalmist writes, Why do the nations rage? Why do the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast their cords out from us. Again, I think that the primary impetus for atheism in the world is we don't want a God who can tell us what to do. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree, the Lord said to me. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned. O rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are those who take refuge in him. And so here, the psalmist, long before John was ever even thought of, the psalmist writes out, someday all that you see, all the injustice in, that you read about, all of the things that you hear of people who are mistreated, children who are taken advantage of, women who are raped, people who are, are stomped on and crushed down, someday justice will be served. And so you have a choice in this world. Either take refuge in the Son or feel His wrath. And so we see John weeping because somebody's got to take control of this situation. And then we see the elder say, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of Jesse, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and the seven seals. So someone finally in human existence is worthy to open the scroll. For the first time since God said, 
you're out of the garden until this moment. The earth has been in turmoil, controlled by an adversary who hates us because we're made in God's image. So now someone says, the lamb is worthy. He's conquered. Somebody can open the scroll. And so we read, and between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing. Now, I told you, when I first got to, the, to this, I wasn't even thinking about the, world sta- the, role, the word standing. And then, uh, as I studied, um, that excited me more than anything. How did he conquer? And that, is, that question of how he conquered is answered by the fact that he's standing. And you ask, what, what am I talking about? If you want to turn in your Bible to Luke chapter, five, uh, Luke chapter 24, verses 5 through 7, we'll read about his victory. And on the first day of the week at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. And when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And while they were perplexed about this, two men stood by them in dazzling a pair. And they were frightened and bowed down their head to the ground. The man said to them, why do you seek the living among the dead? He's not here. He has risen just as he said. And at that moment, the great enemy of all humanity of death is overcome. Death has been killed. The lamb is victorious. He's not dead anymore. He's the lamb that's as if slain, but he's standing there. The enemy thought he had won. The enemy thought he had defeated him. The enemy thought he had overcome him. But no, he's not dead. He's standing there victorious. If that don't get your fire burning, your wood's wet. Woo, that's good stuff. So the lamb is is standing there victoriously. As though it had been slain, but no. has seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God. So each one of those titles is so deep. He's the lamb. Remember John 1, 29, as John the Baptist is standing out and he sees Jesus cresting that hill. And thousands of years of of law had taught them that for sin, there had to be a sacrifice. Every year, there had to be a sacrifice and that the lamb had to be slain. They all knew that imagery of the Passover lamb that was brought into the house and the blood was put over the doorpost. They all knew that imagery so that when John stopped himself mid-sentence and looked and said, look, the lamb that has taken away the sin of the world. They all knew what he meant. So that lamb is rich and deep in imagery of a sacrifice that had to be made. The root or the lion of the tribe of Judah all the way back uh, into the book of Genesis. We read as, as uh, Israel blesses his sons and he says, from you from Judah, a lion will spring forth. We get to meet the lion now. He's the root of David. He's the, from David, David is, is, is the source, and so he has the, the fiduciary right to claim the kingship. If you've been here on Sundays, you've heard us preach about how God told David that from your seed, your throne will be established forever and ever. Well, here's the man who has the right to lay claim to that throne that will be established forever and ever. 
He has seven horns. Horns in scripture symbolize strength and power. And seven being the number of perfection means that the lamb has complete and total power. He is omnipotent. Nothing can withstand him and nothing can hold him back. So no matter what the the enemy wants to throw against him, he is unovercomable. He is completely and totally omnipotent. We, in our, our feeble, little, feeble little minds, we have superheroes that can, you know, if you, if you look at, at, at uh, and I, I, when I was a kid, I did the same thing. We argued about whose superpower was the best, right? Uh, Superman's power is the best because he can fly really fast. Was, while we were on vacation, me and the kids were sitting around talking about, okay, so if you could pick any superpower, what would you be? You know, one of them said super strength. And I'm like, dude, you would just be moving everybody all the time if your power was super strength. And then, no, but I, I want to be able to go anywhere in the earth immediately if I wanted to. And then William, of course, being a science guy, he throws out there, well, if you did that, then all the atoms would be stripped off, and then you'd be killed. And, and it was just this whole big fight over which superpower was the best, laser vision or whatever. And if you think about the fact, that is so pathetic compared to the way this lion of the tribe of Judah is described. He's not given a limited superpower. He can't, can't just leap tall buildings and see single bound. He can remove the building if he wants to. He can go through the building if he wants to. He can move the building out of the way if he wants to. He has all power. He, if he wants to suddenly be in another place, he can be there. If he wants to move that other place to where he is, he can. There's no limitations on his power. In fact, everything that is, according to John, the, John chapter 1, is for him. Everything that exists exists for him and by him and through him. He doesn't even have to destroy everything. He has to just stop holding it together. He has all power. He has, and the same thing is said about his eyes. It says seven, um, he has seven eyes. Jesus said this, but I have said these things to you that when your hour comes, you may remember that I told you. I do not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you, but now I'm going I'm going to him who sent me, and none of you ask me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Jesus is telling them goodbye. They're sad, and he says, nevertheless, I'll tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come. That paraclete, the Holy Spirit. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of the world is judged. Every person in here, at one time or the other in your life, has been hurt deeply. By someone who meant to hurt you. I had someone, uh, a lady in, in that is a member of our church uh, who came to me on a Sunday morning just after a standard service and shared that um, when she was in college that she had been raped by a, a person who was still in this, our community. And nobody would have believed her if she told them. She, she always, for the last 20, 30 years of her life, have, has thought, I did something that caused that. And that's a wound that she's walked around with her entire life that she thought nobody knew Nobody cared. He was physically more strong, powerful than me. He's socioeconomically more powerful than me. I'm without hope. There's nothing I can do. Nobody sees. 
How many times? It's so hard sometimes to see how wounded teenagers can be. Last Wednesday night, we got the the teenagers in the church to fill out a card about because we're trying to pick a curriculum that we can we can use to 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 teach them over the next few months. And so we said, what are the things that you're you're struggling with? Something like 90% of those kids answered anxiety. 16, 17, 13, 12-year-olds saying, anxiety. And part of me wanted to, my knee-jerk reaction when I read that was, you don't even know what the word anxiety means. Well, for to them it is real. And also, I grew up with a mom and dad. When Anne was... uh, substitute teaching at Glencoe High School in her class of 40-some-odd kids. She had two kids that, that had a mommy and daddy in their home that was the same mommy and daddy that had given birth to them, two out of 40. I've had one of our youth when I, uh, who came over to my house, uh, was playing with the kids, swimming around the pool, and uh, William had asked him to spend the night. And I said, son, you need, you need to call your, your uh, mom, somebody let them know you're going to be here. And he said, I live with my grandmother, and she didn't care if I live or die. And so here's a 16-year-old kid who, in his mind, whether it's true or not, doesn't feel like anybody cares about him. And you know what? He's going through his life thinking, nobody sees my pain. Nobody sees the injustice that's been done to me. What this text is saying loudly and clearly is that God sees the lamb is full of eyes. There's nothing he doesn't see. There's nothing that escapes his vision. There's nothing on any day that's going to surprise him. At no point does God ever pace around in heaven and go, what are we going to do now? God sees. And implied in that from what we see in the book of John, he's the only one who can do something about it. Again, have no doubt that justice will be served. Now, the reason why God's word says, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord, is because every wrong will be righted in one of two ways. Either a person will carry the weight of their own sin for eternity in hell. And if you're really a Christian, there's no way that you can wish that on somebody. Or the weight of their transgression was poured out on this lamb, and he took it, one or the other. But every sin will be dealt with. And so we have to understand that. And so we have to function in the world of vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Bless them who curse you. Do good to them who spitefully use you. Seven eyes. And those seven eyes are representative, John tells us, of the seven spirits of God because God's spirit, as we see in John chapter 16, is roaming to and fro on this earth. He sees everything. Now, we see this choir song that breaks out. The, in fact, if you've got a, a Bible that's indented throughout five now, it's going to start breaking out because it's just showing us the verses that they're going through. 
Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open the seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe, language, people, and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our gods, and they shall reign on the earth. Now, I want us to stop for a minute and realize who's writing this and when it's being written. Because this has never been in uh, ministry now for like 20 years. I've been a believer since, goodness, 1983. This has never occurred to me until this week. Okay, here's John. So John was a part, remember when Jesus was here on this earth, he had the crowds, he had 70, he had 12, and he had three, right? So yeah, it was a, it was a good crowd though. There's a lot of people, Jesus goes out. Hey, when word gets out that, that if you're sick, this guy can touch you and it'll heal you, people come to that, right? John MacArthur has said that Jesus effectively banished illness from Israel while he was alive. I mean, if, if Jesus walked up to somebody and, and, and they had low blood sugar, bam, I can fix it. If somebody's blind, he can take some spit on the ground, whoop, you're healed. Crippled from birth, not a problem. Bam, you're fixed. Again, we've really limited superpowers. <laughs> but if anybody was sick, Jesus could just take care of it. And they, so, of course, they had this huge crowd. And then toward the end of Jesus' ministry, it's almost like Jesus has derision toward that crowd. He says things almost on purpose to drive them off. Like, unless you eat of my flesh and drink my blood, you're not worthy of me. And the crowds go, whoa, whoa, I'm not into this thing. And so the crowd starts wandering off to the point that Jesus goes to the disciples and says, are you two going to leave? Peter says, where are we going to go? You're the one who has the words of life. But still that crowd is smaller. And then when Jesus goes through his trial, the crowd get, that group gets even smaller. Some of his closest people, one of them sold him out, was willing to take a month's salary to sell him to be killed. That's one of his 12. And then Peter, the one who just, what, 12 hours before said, I'll go with you to the death, and then backed it up. He wasn't trying to cut the guy's ear off. He wasn't aiming for an ear. <laughs> he just wasn't good with a sword. <laughs> and I still have always wondered about the cop who's executing a warrant. And the bad guy jumps him, his ear gets ripped off or cut off. And the guy you're supposed to arrest reaches down, picks the ear up and heals it. Are you still going <laughs> to cuff that guy? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know that I could do that. Anyway, that's what happened. And then Peter... The guy with the sword, just a few hours later, cusses out a little girl because she recognized that he had a hick accent and had to be running with Jesus. So the sheep are scattered. Then it comes back together. You've got a couple of thousand people that get saved in Jerusalem. It seems to get some momentum. And then Rome comes hard to, to crush this movement. People start getting executed. John, remember, he's writing this from a backwater island that he's been exiled to after being boiled alive in oil. So here is this crippled, scarred old man who, as far as he can see, this whole Christianity thing isn't really getting a whole lot of mo. The churches are being scattered. The seven letters that Jesus just wrote to the seven churches didn't give him a lot of hope that this thing was going to keep going. Because Jesus had to say in six of the seven, unless you correct yourself, I'm shutting you down. 
it's never occurred to me before what John's mental state would be when all of a sudden he hears the fulfillment of Jesus' great commission. You see, the great commission said for, for the, this gospel to be taken to every tribe and language and people and nation. Now, the 11 disciples went to the to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority has been given on heaven and earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son. And so John had to have thought, There's no way we could do it. There's no way we can get the gospel out to all the nations. Because every time we take two steps forward, we have to take three steps back. Every time anything, at this point, in all likelihood, if this was written when, we, when most theologians think it, it was, about 67 to 70 A.D., all the other disciples are dead. And here is John, crippled, covered in burned scars, on an island that he can barely eke out leaks and a few things to subside on, living in a cave. He's not thinking that this whole Christianity thing is going to It's doing so hot. How must he have felt to see people from every tribe, language, people, and nation saying, worthy is the lamb that was slain. All over the world, the vision that Jesus had cast when he sent out his disciples, go out to all the world, go out to all the languages, go out to all the people. How much this old man must have said in that cave as he saw this vision on the Spirit on the Lord's Day have been like, whoa, God's going to do what he said he would do. I, I, I don't know about you, and I don't know about you, brother, but sometimes the Great Commission can feel really heavy. As I share the gospel with somebody and they say, well, I'm glad you believe in something. I sat down with, with a, a man last night and within three minutes of me meeting him, he went into a 10-minute dissertation about how you ain't going to convert me. I think all Christians are hypocrites. I hate Baptists and I don't even know why you want to talk to me. And it can feel like, what is the point? We see here, the Great Commission will be fulfilled. God's going to do what he said he would do. And so we put our faith in him. We put our trust in him. Everything that we do is about him. Not about us. Not about our kingdoms. Our kingdom's not going to live forever. The gates of hell will prevail against our kingdom, but God's kingdom is established, and he will do what he said he would do. And I looked, and I heard around the throne, and the living creatures, and the elders, and the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. Here, John is literally almost speaking gibberish to piece together how to say more than imaginable. Because the biggest number that there was in the language was 10,000. So he's saying 10,000s, plural, upon 10,000s. Myriads, innumerable Groups and more. There's just unbelievable people who have all taken the narrow path, who are there on that day, who are victorious because of the Lamb. Not victorious because of them, they're victorious because of the Lamb. Which, again, remember when we first started talking about the book of the Revelation, we have to remember the target audience. The people that John's writing this letter to are people who are in little bitty churches scattered around Asia Minor 
the book of Hebrews, it says, you willfully lost your possession for the kingdom's sake. They've lost everything. They've lost their families. And throughout Christendom, that's been the case. Who this speak, book speaks to. Remember when we started out, we said we read, happy are you, blessed are you who read this. And we think, how is this blessing? We're starting to see a, a piece of it. I've read the, the story in Fox's Book of Martyrs about the young man whose mother was condemned to death because she had taught her children um, the Lord's Prayer and the Ten Commandments. And so the authorities had gotten so used to people as they were being marched to their execution proclaiming the glory of God and people getting saved that they started taking a screw and running it into people's mouth and screwing it up to keep their mouth prized open so they couldn't talk. And so this little boy was forced to watch his mother burned. And after she, she was burned at the stake, he went and found that screw and kept it in his pocket. As he became, he was given to a good family who would raise him not believing in these silly fairy tales, but God had a way. And he got saved and became a preacher. And his whole life, he walked around with that screw in his pocket to remind him to be the voice that his mother couldn't be. If you're living under that kind of persecution, under that kind of, you need to know that I'm not alone. Even on a much smaller level, when we were missionaries in Turkey, the most crippling, crushing aspect of being on the mission field was the feeling that nobody cares what I'm doing. And so this is beautiful to see that myriads upon myriads, ten thousands upon ten thousands, are singing the same songs that we sing. We're all one. I have more in common with my brother in the Philippines than I ever do with some redneck who lives across the street from me just because he's got an Alabama flag. And that, that royal choir, that royal priesthood is going to come together. In fact, God has not only made us a kingdom, he has made us priests to our gods. We serve him and we will reign on this earth. And I looked around the throne and the living creatures and the elders and the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Again, the way that they were victorious and the way you will be victorious in your Christian walk is to recognize and realize that it ain't about you. It's about the Lamb. And bringing glory to him. And bringing honor to him. And bringing wealth to him. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea. And all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. And now John has set the scene. We are ready for that title deed to the earth for those seals to start being popped off as the lamb claims his inheritance. And it's not going to be pretty. Lord, I pray that you bless the reading of your word, the studying of your word, and God, I pray that you bring us back. And God, that we, as we take off into Revelation 6, Lord, that you would prepare our hearts and our minds. And Lord, we see that you are God and you are in control. God, I pray that we 
as we sometimes labor under the weight and we feel like we just can't do it anymore and it's just too much, Lord, that we would recognize that everything that we have, everything that we are, and everything that will be has been bought by a price. Oh, God, help us. Help us see this scene. Help us live this out as we go. Lord, help us to be that royal priesthood. Help us to be that people ransomed. Help us to live at what we are. In Jesus' name, amen. I, um, before we open up questioning, there's that idea that's really hard for us to wrap our brain around about I was saved, I am saved, I'm being saved, future tense, that past, present, future. And Paul saying in Ephesians chapter 1, you are now in the heavenlies. And I thought of, this may be silly for you, it it struck me today because obviously this is on my head. I was um, walking through the gathering area and I had an egg in my hand and... um, being the kind of person that I am, I was throwing the egg because, duh, why, why not? And so I'm pitching the egg to myself, and I ended up, um, because, again, I'm sorry, uh, I, was, I decided just on a whim I was going to throw it so that the egg would go over the flag that I was getting to and I was going to catch it. And so as I threw it and it left my hand, I, the thought went through my mind is, I ain't catching that egg. It's a done egg. It's kind of like Schrodinger's cat. Have you ever read about Schrodinger's cat? If the cat's put in there, is it dead or alive until you look? The moment that it released my hand, that egg was destroyed. There was nothing I could do about it. The moment it released my hand, it was a foregone conclusion that that egg was going to hit the ground and go. But if you could freeze time, the egg was fine the whole time that it was going up and over the flag and to hit the ground. And that's what we're seeing here. God has already set in motion. It's as sure as that egg busting when it hit the ground that you are a priest, that you are in the heavenlies, that you have every blessing in God, that every promise of God is yes in Christ Jesus. But today, right? Michelle's dad died last night, and I still got to make a uh, figure out how I'm going to come up with insurance payment and car payment, and life still happens. So it's good sometimes to see this and realize that just as sure as that egg was going to pop when it hit the ground, God has released. It has happened. It's a sure thing. God's the one in control. It's just not yet. It's already, but not yet. So maybe that helps you, maybe not. I don't know. It hit me funny, and maybe it's just because I've been reading commentaries on Revelation all day. Um, Any questions?